About a little over 12 years ago, there was a very, very remarkable and unique kind of thing that took place right on national TV while the whole world was watching. And it took place on the steps of the Capitol building in Washington. And here was the the unique thing that happened. On the steps of the Capitol was the entire Congress together, all together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, Democrat and Republican. And they were standing there to voice their unity. There was a the Speaker of the House who was a Republican and the, the leader of the Senate who was a Democrat. They both spoke at the podium and they both declared their solidarity. And both said, listen, we are here to stand together today. We want the whole world to know we stand as one. We are committed to one vision and one purpose. It was a remarkable scene, especially whenever you consider the fact that just two days earlier, the entire Congress had been locked in a bitter feud and battle about the budget, which if you've been paying attention lately, some things never change. Just keeps happening over and over. But anyways, just two days earlier, they had been in this fierce battle together. But here they are in this moment, side by side, hugging one another. And then as the press conference was over, an impromptu song began to break out among the Congress. They began to see, un- sing unplanned, God bless America, together with one voice. What a remarkable scene. These people that normally cannot stand to be in the same room, these people that normally are always fighting, fighting for their own agenda, name-calling like a bunch of third graders. What could do this? How did this happen? What could possibly take place that in the course of two days, this entire group of people would be so changed in an instant? Of course, it wasn't permanent, but at least they were changed for the moment. What did that? Well, it was, of course, the events of 9-11. You see, what what had happened the day before is our country had been attacked in in an unprecedented way. Our country had been attacked. We were at war. And somehow, that realization, that reality, in a moment, changed everything. In a moment, it changed the kind of things that they prioritized. It changed the kind of things that they were living for. It changed the kind of ways that they would relate to one another and the ways that they would view their own little agendas. Here, we were looking at a group of people who were unified, who we would never expect to be unified before. You see, a wartime mentality tends to change things. Peoples that are at war, there's a a sense of unity. There's a sense of togetherness. There's a sense of we have a common vision, a common goal, and we're going to come together for that. They they tend to view their, their, their money differently, their time differently. I mean, for the whole nation, it is a time for sacrifice, a time for working together, a time for setting aside your own preference for the good of the whole. But a peacetime mentality... Well, it can be quite different, can it? In a peacetime mentality, people tend to be more focused on their own agendas, on their own priorities, a concern for 
for security and for comfort and prosperity tends to take over and people begin to to bicker and fight. I think as we look at the American church today, I think what we're seeing is very often a peacetime mentality. And that's... That comes to shape the way that we view everything, the way that we live, the way that we view our money, the way that we view life, the way that we view one another. But there are places in the world today where the church is under no delusion of peacetime, where the church is undergoing great persecution and great suffering, and the reality that they are in the midst of a great war is very apparent to them. And it changes and shapes their outlook upon their common purpose and upon one another. As we come to the book of Acts, you know what we see, maybe more than anything else, is that there's a war going on. We are looking in on these early Christians as the message of the gospel is filling the whole known world at the time. And you see great persecution, great suffering, great opposition. Last week we see a riot break out. The thing that you notice is that, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a war happening here. Not just a war between flesh and blood, but a great cosmic war, a war between two kingdoms, one kingdom that is refusing to give ground, another kingdom, the kingdom of God that is breaking in upon it, unseating the power of Satan, liberating people. The battleground for this war is the human heart. And as we look at the book of Acts, we see, wait a minute, we are actually at war. There's a war all around us. And as we begin to take on that mentality, it changes the ways that we live, that we relate, and that we relate to everything in our life. It's what we see. In our passage here, we really see the nature of the war. As Paul here meets with the Ephesian elders, last week we were in Ephesus as we were looking at the story in Ephesus last week. Paul has come to Ephesus and he's been there for about three years ministering there. And we saw all the things that were taking place in Ephesus. We saw that people were literally being liberated from idolatry. And that the the great temple of Artemis was going bankrupt. that, That there was a great uproar in the city because of how the church and the gospel was impacting it. Well, after those three years, Paul begins to move on to other cities further west in the Roman Empire. And then he begins to circle back around on his way back to Jerusalem. As he comes back through, he doesn't come to Ephesus, but he comes to a city named Miletus nearby. And he sends for the Ephesian elders, the elders that as he had come in and installed these elders over these churches, leaders and shepherds. And as they come to meet him, that's the scene that we're looking at here. As they come to meet him, these men that he had been living life with, that he had suffered with, that he had loved, that he had poured his life into, here they meet, as Paul tells them, for the last time. And the scene that we're looking in on is them all together on the beach. The ship is tied up. They're about to get back on the ship and head towards Jerusalem. And they meet together for the last time. And they kneel down on the beach together. And they pray together. And just before they pray, Paul preaches a sermon to them. His last sermon to them. In fact, he says, you'll never see my face again. Paul knows the war is about to rage more than it ever has for his life. And he will soon be martyred. But in this moment, 
his last words to the leaders of these churches. He pours out his heart to them. He calls them to the most important things that they are to remember, to remember as they lead the church. And that is the scene that we have here. His last words to them, kneeling down on the beach and praying together. So it's a remarkable scene, a charged scene, an important scene. Anytime you, you give a last words to someone, a last charge to someone, you want to emphasize what is most important about what you are entrusting to them. And one of the things we notice about Paul's sermon here, which in fact, interestingly enough, is the only sermon in the book of Acts that's preached to Christians. The book of Acts is filled with sermons. The preaching of the word is like a, a central thing Luke wants you to see in the whole book of Acts. And there's sermons to all kinds of different people, pagans and, and to intellectuals and to Jews. But here it's the only one that is actually preached to Christians. And it's preached to the elders here. And so what we notice about this sermon, the things that Paul emphasizes, first and foremost, is the sense that we are in the midst of a great war. That's what we see in our passage here. You notice it first and foremost as Paul, at the beginning of this sermon, he begins to recount his past ministry, his past life. And he reminds them of all that they have seen as they have walk through him and his life. And he reminds them of what the nature of his ministry has been. And he says in verse 19, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You see, he's reminding them of something that was a constant in his ministry. As he would go to a city, the first place he would go was the synagogue. And he would go there and he would begin to declare to Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And the most fierce opposition and persecution he faced was from the Jews, where he was beaten, where he was run out of town, where a whole town was stirred up in opposition to him and his companions. He's reminding them of what's characterized his whole ministry, the plots of those who opposed him. But then he goes on to talk about what he knows is waiting ahead of him. Look in verse... Look at verse 23. We'll start at verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He knows something is waiting for him. He knows great trouble is waiting for him, but not exactly what will be his fate. Verse 23, I know, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. You see, for Paul, this is a fundamental reality of his ministry. He knows what has characterized his ministry from the very beginning and what will continue to is prison, hardship, suffering. It's part and parcel to the mission of God. And then, look at what he says in verse 24 about his perspective on all this that he knows that he will face. Verse 24, however... I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul says, I know all of these things are facing me and eventually death, but my life 
Safety, comfort, security, those things do not matter to me. Even my very own life does not matter to me. The the thing that I most care about is that I may fulfill the task that has been given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. You see, because Paul realizes this is a war. And it's a war between the kingdom of God as it comes in on and unseats all the spiritual forces and powers that are enslaving people and humans and places and cities. And as the kingdom of God comes in, there will be great opposition. And Paul knows that. And he says, my goal is not to avoid opposition or suffering, but it is rather to testify to the gospel in the midst of the suffering. But it's not just Paul that we see in here that's going to face this kind of battle and conflict. He also warns the elders of what they will face even from within the church. Look at verse 28. Second sentence, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in from among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I've not stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul here warns them. He says, listen guys, because we're in the midst of a war, there will be trouble even from within the flock for which you've been called to shepherd. Men will arise, savage wolves, those whose motives will be to devour the sheep. They will arise even from within your own number. And they will begin to lead people astray and teach them false doctrines. We, in fact, see this happening all through the epistles. Most of the New Testament epistles are written to address this very thing that has taken place. So Paul is warning the elders, these men that have been called to shepherd these people... We are at war. And the war is not just out there, but even from within the church. So be on your guard. Be prepared. The overwhelming sense that we get from Paul's message and sermon here to these shepherds is that we are in the midst of a great cosmic conflict. That is, God's kingdom comes into this world and liberates and unseats strongholds and powers, that there will be great opposition. As Paul was coming and announcing the gospel and people were being set free, some people were embracing it with great joy. Others were opposing it with violence because it was a threat to their power. There was a great conflict. There was a great opposition. Now, sometimes we are very taken back by suffering in our life very taken back by opposition, by difficulty, by hardship. We are very prone to think if something bad goes in our life, if, if things very difficult and hard begin to come into our life, we begin to think, wait a minute, have I done something wrong? Have I displeased God in some way? Because we have the implicit understanding that if I'm good with God, if I'm pleasing Him, then everything will go well in my life. That's just not what we see in the Scriptures. In fact, if you are with God on His mission, if you are serving Him, if you are bearing witness to His kingdom, guess what's going to happen? Things will get worse. Merry Christmas. 
Things are going to be hard. You're going to suffer. That's why the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rather rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ. It's not a strange thing to endure suffering, to experience hardship in the Christian life. In fact, the more that we are pressing into Him and experiencing the liberation of the gospel, the more conflict we will face outside us, in the world, from Satan, and even from our own flesh. It generates a great conflict. So why should there be suffering for us? Well, it's because we are united to a suffering Savior. And the way that He conquered... The way that through Him, the kingdom of God poured into this world and unseated the power of Satan. You know how it happened? Not with guns, not with bombs, not with superior power, but with the laying down of His life, with suffering, with responding to the injustice of the world with love for His enemies. You see, it is the upside-down power of God that comes through weakness, that comes through dying. That is how the kingdom of Satan is brought down, both in our life and in our world. Jesus overcame and defeated, not by powering up, but by submitting to the Father and laying down His life. And so the same is true in our lives. How does the kingdom of God come into my life? Not through powering up, not through getting better, not through health and wealth and prosperity, which is actually the very message he warned would arise from within the church. It is the way of death, the way of suffering as we embrace suffering with him and embrace hardship and embrace all that comes from identifying with his name. That is how his kingdom comes. If you're united to him, You are in a great cosmic war. And understanding that is so crucial for us today because it changes the way that we live. Well, I think in the passage, not only does Paul give this sense and this warning, you're in a war, but I think he calls them and us to three things that are essential for this war. First, we see the protection of the kingdom. The protection of the kingdom are the relationships within the church. Did you notice the relationships that you see portrayed in this passage? It's quite remarkable. As you hear the things that Paul says to them, you know, Paul had lived with them for three years and he had shared life with them. He had come to love them, not just teaching them things, but literally sharing his life with them. And the quality of their fellowship together was so deep and so rich that you see at the very end of this scene that powerful moment as they kneel on the beach together. And it says in verse 36, When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And then the very next verse in chapter 21 says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea. It's hard to miss 
the quality, the depth, the richness of their relationships together. They needed one another. They depended on one another. They knew each other. But it's not just any old kind of relationship. It's relationships that are marked by commitment, accountability, boundaries. Did you notice that in the passage as he speaks to these men? He reminds them, you are shepherds of specific people. You have been given sheep under your care. That is your calling. That is your responsibility. The Holy Spirit is the one who has made you shepherds of these people. It's quite remarkable as we look at this, what we see is an actual structure of accountability, a structure of leadership. There are elders here that God has put over, given authority over a specific group of people. And they have a high calling, a high responsibility. As Paul says to them here, Keep watch over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God that He bought with His own blood. See, the reality for these shepherds is to realize that sheep are often very stinky and smelly and wander off and getting into all kinds of trouble. But what Paul wants to remind them here is, yeah, yeah, I get that. But these are the people that God has bought with His very own blood. In other words, these sheep are precious to Him. That's what He wants to emphasize to these elders. The people over whom you have been placed... They are precious to Him. So take this calling as highly as you possibly can. But I think there's also an implication here for the sheep. One of the things that He says to the shepherds is, keep watch over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, it's not these men that said, hey, I think we ought to be the leaders of this group. It's not even the people who said, we think you need to be our leaders. Ultimately, It's God. It's the Holy Spirit who calls these men to take care of these people. And the reason that He does it is because of His love for these people. Now, this is not a popular reality in our culture. I fully recognize we live in a society today that has a great disdain for authority and submission and things like that. We prize individuality, freedom, freedom of choice. You see, God realizes the nature of our hearts. And if we're wise, we will too. We will recognize that we are capable of absolutely anything. And so we desperately need people in our life who know us, who will speak truth into our life, who will come after us as we begin to wander away as sheep are prone to do. We need people in our life to whom we submit. That is actually God's will for us. It's His care for us. And it is through one another, through the leaders He brings into our life, that God actually shepherds us through them and cares for us. Next month, as we mentioned just a little bit before, we're going to have a special service on November 10th where we get to set apart and ordain elders and deacons that the Holy Spirit has called to be shepherds of this flock. So I'd invite you to come to that as an expression of submission to that and also worship to the Lord that He would not just leave us to our individual walks, 
but he would actually bring men into our lives who would care for us and who would watch over us. And part of what, what we're called to do as sheep is to open our hearts to them and to respond to them. So the protection of the kingdom is relationships, relationships between those in the body, but not just any relationships, accountable relationships, committed relationships. There's also another thing to see, the power of the kingdom. What is the power of the kingdom we see running all the way through this sermon? One of the things that Paul emphasizes over and over and over is the message that he has proclaimed. He says this, you know, verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. Verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 24 that we just read, this is my task, the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. You see, the whole sermon is shot through and centered around this, declaring the message of God's grace. The power of the kingdom is the gospel. That was how Paul viewed the center of his whole ministry, his whole task, the thing that he walked into a city knowing could change it was the announcing of the good news of the gospel. He would come into a city, he would go house to house, and what would he do? He would declare, he would proclaim, he would preach the good news of the gospel, call on people to, re- to respond to it, and people were being changed. People were being transformed. A whole culture was being changed as we saw last week. At the very center of Paul's ministry was the announcing of the gospel. And as Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. For as someone hears the good news of God's grace and receives it and puts their hope in it, it changes them. It reorients them. It transforms all of their life. But it was not just something for Paul to be announcing. It was also something for these shepherds to constantly be pressing into the lives of their sheep. Notice what he says in verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which is the gospel, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He reminds them, I am committing you to the gospel. And the gospel has the power to transform you, shepherds, and those to whom you are leading. See, for Paul, it was this message This message that though all of the earth is filled with rebellion against a holy God, God in His grace has chosen to move into the world, to give up His very own Son that through His blood, through union with Him, we might be forever welcome to Him. It is a message of immense grace. And as you make that your hope, it changes everything. It's the power of God. It's the power of the kingdom. But there's a third aspect, I think, to see in his sermon here that he calls us to. And it's the work of the kingdom. Notice there at the end of his sermon where Paul says this, verse 34. You yourselves know 
that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. See, he lived with them for three years. They got to see his life. He actually lived among them. Verse 35, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, Paul says, here is the work I'm calling you to. Here is the work of the kingdom. Here is the kind of life you're to give yourself to. Here's how he sums it up. Help the weak. Help the weak. Live lives of mercy. Live lives that are oriented around giving yourself away to those who are in need, to those who are broken, to those who are marginalized, to those who are forgotten. This is the work of the kingdom. Because as Jesus' people do these very things, they dismantle the kingdom of Satan. All of Satan's kingdom is around getting mine, my power, my way. It's about stepping on those that are in my way to get ahead. But in God's kingdom, it's totally reoriented. And as we as His people make it our priority to help the weak to give our lives and ourselves away, we dismantle His kingdom. We bear witness to another kingdom that is coming. We bring glory and honor to Christ. One of the things that was said about the early church is that what most stood out about them in the Roman Empire is about the ways that they cared for the sick and the poor and the needy. In fact, there's... In many places, it's been written about how during times of plague and disease in these Roman cities that people would be leaving in droves. They'd be packing their stuff to get out so they didn't get sick. And of course, the only ones that could leave were the rich and the powerful, those with means. But it was said as they were leaving these cities, they were passing the Christians who were actually moving into the cities, actually going in to care for the weak, to care for the sick, to care for the poor. And it was shocking. It made no sense. Why would anyone choose to do such a thing? In fact, there's an early writing. It's a letter written by the the Roman emperor Julian. He writes a letter to one of his governors, and he's complaining about the Christians. And the nature of his complaining is that their life is so marked by mercy and care for the poor that is showing up Caesar. It's threatening his good name. It's threatening the gods that they worship because these Christians are living such lives. It's making our lives and our gods look bad. We got to do something. He doesn't even refer to them as Christians. He calls them the impious Galatians, which I think is hilarious. But he says, this is an actual quote, he says, these impious Galatians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. They care not only for their own poor, but ours as well. The thing that sets apart Christianity and Christians from all of the religions of the world, all of the religions of the world have been created by a ruling class to keep in subjection those who are below them. Hinduism, Buddhism, all of these religions were created in order for those who were in misery and poverty to accept their lot and say, if I stay in my place, if I stay in my caste, then next time I'll move up. But Christianity 
is just the opposite. It says to those who are first, to those who are on top, to those who are in power, you move low. You go towards the broken. You use your position of power and authority, not for yourself, but in service to those who are below you. See, it's because in this kingdom, to give is to receive. To become last is actually to become first. To yield yourself to the needs of others. It's the highest ethic in this kingdom. Why is it like that? Why is Christianity like that? Why are we supposed to be that way? Well, here's why. Jesus himself said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man, the one to whom all glory in heaven and on earth belongs, the only man who has ever deserved all of the worship of the whole world, he did not come to be served, though he should have been by everyone. He came to serve and to give his life away for people like us, for people that would try to steal his glory. When that hits home for you, when you begin to realize He has served me in the most extravagant and lowly way, it begins to change you. As you begin to see, no, no, I'm the weak one. I'm not strong. I'm desperately weak before the face of a holy God. And yet, He has lowered Himself to move towards me, to wash me, to cover me. When that hits home, it changes the orientation of your life. It changes you from a posture of upward mobility to one of downward mobility. And Paul says, that is the work of the kingdom. That is the gospel. That is the gospel applied in our lives, and it produces the work of the kingdom. May we as his people receive the truth of the gospel. Let it orient all of our lives, and may it produce the work of the kingdom in us as a community, mercy, compassion, love, justice. Let's pray together.